Hey everyone, this is Lynn Bartim, and you are listening to the Apex Hour on KSUU Thunder 91.1. In this show, you get more personal time with the guests who visit Southern Utah University from all over, learning more about their stories and opinions beyond their presentations on stage. We will also give you some new music to listen to and hope to turn you on to some new sounds and new genres. You can find us here every Thursday at 3 p.m. or on the web at seu.edu slash apex. But for now, welcome to this week's show here on Thunder 91.1. All right. Well, welcome back, everyone. Welcome to the Apex Hour. It is homecoming week here at Southern Utah University, and we are so excited to be broadcasting this week and sharing our homecoming events with you. This is the second year in a row we have done an alumni spotlight for Apex events. And what that means is we have some outstanding alumni here from SUU, and sometimes we get to invite them back to campus uh, to give a presentation. And so today we are so happy to have Mbemba Dizolele here with us, who was a student here at Southern Utah University and is now doing all kinds of amazing things. So welcome to the studio. Thank you very much, Lynn. Appreciate it. I'm so happy to have you here. And your talk was so well attended today. It was, you're famous here. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, I could definitely read about your bio, but what I'd love to start is just kind of talking about the things that you've done uh, since you left SUU. I know currently you're teaching at Johns Hopkins University. And so how did you go from Southern Utah University to where you are right now? Give us a little bit of an insight to your, your path. All right. Thank you very much, Lena. It's a pleasure to be back in the city city, SUU. Uh, this is home to me. And um, by way of where I've been, I graduated here. Like most students, I'd want to go to graduate school. And um, I chose the University of Chicago. Ah, which was a change uh, from city to city. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's a high level of intensity. It's south side of Chicago, ah. uh, both academically very highly rated, but also it's the inner city. It's a mm-hmm. different pace of, uh, of life. There's violence, there's the urban trepidation and everything else. I studied uh, international policy, got uh-huh. a degree in public policy, but uh, international policy. And while I was there, I took the time to be an intern at The Voice of America. Oh. So I did something similar to this. I was actually an international broadcaster during well, that time. I could take some lessons then. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. I read the news in French. Ah. It was called the French Service to Africa, uh, VOA. So I did a lot of newsmaker interviews. I uh, also did a lot of affiliate relations. Mm-hmm. Uh, in those days, um, you know, media and politics had just started being liberalized. The political mm-hmm. space was opening up across the world. It was the... Uh, the collapse of the Berlin Wall, the many things that were changing. So part of my job beside doing the news was also to build relationship, partnerships with various radio stations around the world, particularly in Africa. So created few uh, partnerships in South Africa, in Sierra Leone, in Liberia, in the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and so on. Came back to school, graduated, went back to D.C., and then I worked in uh, in a couple places. I worked uh, for the State Department uh, doing interpreting, uh-huh. which was interesting because interpreting itself, 
you know, people say you're just going from one language to another, but you actually find yourself in the midst of very important discussions. Right. Everything that is policy, whether it's politics, whether it's uh, environmental protection, whether it's uh, defense, whether it's anti-terrorism. So I end up to, I end up doing a lot of things that I didn't even know existed before. I end up in Pittsburgh and learn about the Cuyahoga River cutting fire oh. in the old days when, you know, you think of Pittsburgh, just another city with Heinz tomato sauce or something. Yeah, but yeah. it turns out Pittsburgh has been a leader in the environmental cleanup. I didn't know that. Yeah, there was a time when in Pittsburgh, people used to take two, three shirts to work because you wear your white shirt in the morning. By noon, the shirt was all dark with was all the suits and stuff. Oh, wow. But they did tremendous work. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an example. People come from around the world to go see what they can learn from Pittsburgh. I had no idea. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. So did that. And then after a while, I left. I went to work in the uh, international finance world. Ah. Uh, I uh, speak Norwegian. I lived in Norway, went to school in Norway. So I was hired for, by a group called Thompson Financial. Mm-hmm. And I became a global research analyst in charge of the Thai and Norwegian and Scandinavian market, focus on Norway, working with pension funds, uh, the TIA Craft, you a teacher, yeah. TIA Craft, CalPERS, mm-hmm. all mm-hmm. those were my clients. Oh, uh, wow. I had to work to help them understand what the investment uh, was like in yeah. different parts of the world. Yeah. So that was interesting because it was a cross-section of my international policy training, my political science training here at ACU. And um, also language skill sets. Uh-huh. So you, it's one of those jobs when you come in the morning, you read the newspaper, your boss walks by, he says he's really working hard <laughs> because you had to know, you had to keep up with everything that was happening with yeah. the world. And uh, I enjoyed that a lot, but I wanted to do something else. So I'd gone back to school after that, went back to Chicago. And oh, you went back to Chicago? I went back to Chicago uh-huh. to study business administration. Mm-hmm. So this time I got a degree in international business administration and economics, uh, international business and entrepreneurship. And during my time there, I took time off to go work in investment banking, uh, first with Deutsche Bank in, uh, in Madrid, uh-huh. where um, as a, in a global equities research, my job was to follow development in Latin America. Uh-huh. Uh, Argentina was just having a lot of trouble. And my job was to follow Spanish investment in Latin America wow. and then report every morning to the London office where our research team was so that our clients will have a sense of what was happening. But I also ended up spending a lot of time at the Bolsa in Madrid, which is the stock exchange. Mm-hmm. So uh, as a lady, you probably appreciate it. So Zara, Zara, the yeah. big outfit. Oh, I know uh, it yeah. well. <laughs> so I used to follow companies like Zara. I, oh. go, I remember going to the Bolsa to see when Zara will announce the result. I see. Now in Spanish, we say Sara uh-huh. because it's actually the name of the girl, the daughter of the owner. Oh, he named right. the company after his daughter. Oh. So I got kind of involved in that Spanish segment in yeah. the business side. But in Spain, it's also a very beautiful country. Yeah. Allow me to travel a lot in the sub-region, uh, spend time in Portugal, time in Spain, north and south and stuff. And uh, came back to the States, worked for a consulting firm. Um, this was after the collapse of Enron and everything yeah. else. And people were very scared to go to jail. So I worked for a group called the Corporate Executive Board. And they were known for best practices. Mm. Um, so in my specific case, I was in engagement with CFOs and treasurer of 500, uh, Fortune 500 companies, uh, which meant I travel a lot across the U.S., mm. uh, cover a lot of the Western region, but also regions like Florida. It was great, but it was not stimulating. Mm. 
CFOs and treasurers are not the most stimulating cast of people. <laughs> uh, they know their numbers, but that's about financial statement. There's only so much you can talk about when you look at the financial statement mm -hmm. of the company. So I left that line of business. I decided to inv invest fully in international affairs as an analyst. Yeah. So since then, I've been covering conflict in places like the DRC. I was embedded with UN peacekeeping troops there. Um, I've done a lot of work with Congress, work with uh, DOD. So I work in this intersection of uh, international security, international politics, congressional stuff. So it's advocacy, yeah. analysis, and education. Yeah. Uh, did a tour with the Hoover Institution at Stanford University when I was a fellow and um, spent about three years affiliated with them doing research and others, other things. And eventually landed up uh, back in D.C. with uh, Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. And over there, I teach courses on security and conflict. I, that's amazing. I didn't realize you had this duality in finance and international relations kind of going throughout your your career. Yes. Ha yeah. Were you always interested? I mean, was the international uh, side of it being involved in international education? And was that always a part of things and kind of always getting in the front of your mind and in your heart? Or is that something that developed uh, the more that you explored the world internationally? No, the international part was always there. Mm -hmm. I think as a kid, um, um, you know, growing up in Zaire, the Democratic Republic today, Democratic Republic of Congo today, uh, you couldn't help but be international in the right. sense, I mean, it's, it's the heart of the world. It's at the crossroads in the sub-region. But I was also very much exposed to a lot of the international stuff. Mm -hmm. um, you know, my first English teacher was a Peace Corps volunteer. Yeah, <laughs> you know, right. I read a lot. You know, I love kids in our, in our part of the world. Uh, our cartoon, the main cartoon at the time was Tintin or what we call Tintin. Yeah. And Tintin is a world traveler. He's a yes. reporter. So those are as young as eight. You start learning about Al Capone in Chicago. You learn about Yeti, the abominable snowman in Tibet. You learn about the fakir in India. Yeah. So it's automatic. It's not almost. It's given to you through osmosis. Nobody mm -hmm. says you're going to learn international affairs. Right. But you follow Tintin in Inca in Peru. Yeah. So you are, you're forced to read about the Incas and, and stuff like that. Um, you know, but you also, you know, even other cartoons like Asterix, mm -hmm. you get to learn about the Romans and mm -hmm. the Gauls. And so it's it sucks you in very early on. Yeah. And But in my case, also, I read a lot. So through my parents, there was a lot of that stuff. My father, uh, when I was about nine, uh, one of my chores was to listen to the news in the evening and brief him. No way. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I made a lot of mistakes, but it helped me learn a few things. In That's the process. a wow. Wow. Yeah, yeah. That was very forward thinking of them. What a great yeah. way to educate you and get yeah. you to articulate it back to them. That's sure. amazing. Sure. Yeah. Well, we were talking a little bit about some of the traveling that you do and, and I'd love to ask you what, what do you find most rewarding? I know you're in a position to be educating and giving workshops to the military and, and all different kinds of things. What, what particularly turns you on right now about what you're doing? I think it's just the idea to be able to influence somebody's vision of the world. Mm -hmm. Not because you want to, uh, like, to give your own vision, but to help them connect the dot. I mean, the world is full of smart people. Yeah. But smart people do not always connect the dot. Right. Because they see the world in a certain way. We are trained as humans to think in boxes yeah. and stuff. 
And people don't always see things that are right in front of them. So I think with my varied background, my exposure to many things, I'm able to do that in ways that not many people can. Yeah, Yeah. fantastic. Well, it's already, I, I mean, I just, I'm so enjoying listening to you and hearing about your life, but it's already time for our first musical break. All right. uh, and listeners of the show know that I love music from all over the world. So I was trying to think, I mean, uh, with your specialty in African studies and what kinds of things, and I, I, I have several uh, uh, things to play. I have three different songs, but um, I have a, there's a Senegalese artist who I've been just recently turned on to, and I have a little bit of information on him. Um, and, and he's a part of the new, his name is Seko Kaeda, Kaeda, K-E-I-T-A. And one of the things that's interesting, and, and we were talking, I'm a percussionist, but he is, uh, plays the Kora and is bringing this instrument kind of into, uh, sort of more crossover forms in, in music. And so I want you to check out a song from his. Um, and again, you're listening to KSUU Thunder 91.1. And this artist is called Seku, Seku, Seku And the song is called The Path from Gabu. Have a listen. Thank you. 
Okay, well, welcome back to the Apex Hour. This is Lynn Vartan, and you're listening to KSUU Thunder 91.1. That was The Path from Gabu um, by Seku or Sekou Kaida. And the the way you spell it is S-E-C-K-O-U. And the last name is K-E-I-T-A. And that instrument was the Kora. Um, and, and this artist is from Senegal. But my guest today, we we're talking about the music of the Congo music, Congolese music. And so Mvembe Dizolele, welcome back to the thank station. You, thank you, Lynn. And please share with me. We were talking, I think that's a, as a percussionist, it's a little bit of a gap. I, I'm, I, I want to know more, uh, about the music of Congo. So you were saying that it's really a, a, a sort of a central piece for the continent, uh, from a musical standpoint. Correct. So the DRC among the many things that we know the country for, you know, minerals, uh, the forest, the rain, rainforest, the river and all that. The DRC is a big powerhouse when it comes to music. Mm-hmm. So um, it contributes a lot to world music. It's one of the dominant music uh, houses in, in Africa, along with Nigeria uh, and South Africa. The Congo has a long, over time, diverse music. So it goes, it delves deep into kind of rumba, ah. la cubana. Oh, you really? have a lot of that, so often you can listen to music, especially from the 40s and the 50s, and not be sure if it's the Cuban playing or the Congolese playing. I didn't know that. Yeah, but in part because, you know, there's been a lot of migration to uh, human trafficking, to slavery, yes. into the islands. So there's a lot of that infusion of Congolese culture in the island, oh, okay. in the culture of the island, mm. from Haiti all the way to Martinique. Mm-hmm. So if you listen to Zouk, you listen to... Um, uh, Azuk, you listen to Compa, you listen to Buena Vista Social Club. Yes, of course. You get a lot of that influence. I see. But we also have to keep in mind that Cubans showed up in Africa early in the 50s and the 40s to build railroads. Right. So they brought some of the music back to the continent, which is a full circle. And the DRC has benefited from that quite a bit. And then you go through different generations. Um, there's a style called Rumba Rock which was really promoted by people like the late Papa Wemba, Gilles uh, Sungu Wembadio. You have groups like Cartier Latin, who have Kofi Olomide, who's like big idol across the continent. You have um, a specific sound that was developed by people like uh, Franco, Luambo Machiadi, uh-huh. and he played a type of what they call Congolese jazz. Um, so it's almost impossible for you to be on the continent at a party and not listen to Congolese music. I see. And it's very dominant that way. There's also a strain of uh, lady artists in Congo. Oh, okay. So this goes again deep into uh, the 40s with people like uh, ladies like Lucy Ayenga. Um, today you have people like Mbili Abel. And you have younger both on the instrument and on the vocal. Oh, okay. And it's been very, so it's a very important feature of Congolese culture. And what is the, the Congolese jazz like? What style is it? Is it sort of an upbeat jazz or is it more mellow or is it, does it have specific It's traits? more beat. It's somewhere in between. It's more tempo because there's a semban. So the Congolese have learned to develop a specific sound with the guitar. Oh. So sometimes when you hear the Congolese play the guitar, you're not sure what instrument is that. Really? But Typically okay. is the guitar. So they've developed a specific strain that okay. I may recommend some for you. Yes, for please. Your audience, yeah. You know. Is there yeah. a specific guitarist that comes to mind? 
Oh, there are many of them. There is one named Rigo Starr. There is one named Franco himself was a big guitarist. Oh, okay. So that's what he was known for. Well, we'll definitely try to get um, some title, some artists written down and we'll post it on our website. So Absolutely I'm sure people are, I mean, I can't wait to study it and listen mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you for sharing that. Pleasure. Well, as we talk about uh, uh, the Congolese culture and some of the topics and some of your research and your travels, um, can you give us a little bit of a, a, a outline of your talk today for those who maybe didn't get a chance to hear it or who are listening now and, and want to know a little bit more about, about your presentation today. So my presentation today um, was called Congo at the Center of the World's Revolutions. And the objective is simply to point out that, you know, countries are not created equal. Like human beings, uh, countries also have specific DNA. Those are powerful statements, both yeah. of them. Yeah. So... And this depends on the history of the country, where they're located, what kind of endowment they have. Right. Some countries have more resources, uh, financial. Some countries have more natural resources. In the case of the DRC, the DRC, because of its resources, has been present at all the major development of the modern world. Wow. And when I talk about the modern world, I'm talking about starting in the 15th century. Wow. You know, what I call the uh, the series of revo- world revolutions. Mm. So I talk today about the Spice Revolution, which triggered the uh, so-called exploration age. Mm-hmm. Uh, Portuguese and Spaniards being the, the powers at the time set out to discover the world, quote-unquote. But really what they were looking was to spice their the regime, the diet, right. uh, the food was very bland in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, British, the food is still bland today. You, know, <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you have to bless them. But, uh, but you know, they had to find the curry in India. They had to find the pili pili and the paprika elsewhere. But that endeavor, that in- initiative spur tremendous growth in the economy. Mm-hmm. You know, people were making millions of dollars, maybe billions in today's, uh, with inflation accounted for, uh, Trading with spices right. and shipping. So it's per shipping, it's per good health, mm-hmm. because the food was taken better, was healthier, but it's also spur scientific development, right? So the exploration itself is not just about getting on a ship. Getting on a ship means you have to have a fine, a financier who invests so you can build your ship. Right. That's why people like Christopher Columbus need the backing of queens and kings. Exactly. But you also need it beyond the financier. You need people who be the scientific side of it, right? Uh-huh. The cartographer, the mariners, the guys who follow the stars. Mm-hmm. So you don't, it doesn't happen to the way it happened to Christopher Columbus. He got lost. Yeah. Well, thank for him. Thank God for him. He was able to find his way back. Yeah. But he got lost. Uh, yeah. Um, so you have all this development that are happening as part of that spice revolution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But as part of that spice revolution, we also end up with slavery. Right. Yeah? Because this discovery created new needs of labor and stuff. So the same places where... These Western countries at the time, these powerful nations were sending the navigators, they start doing things that shouldn't have been doing, like mm-hmm. selling human beings. And um, But Congo, again, in that dimension was very key. Congo contributed about 25% of all Africans who came to the United States alone. 25%? 25% wow. roughly of all Africans who came to the United States are from the Congo region. So the contribution is huge. The incident is much higher in the islands, places like Jamaica. Bob Marley sings about Congo Bongo Man. 
Oh, right. <laughs> you know, Haiti is very Congo nation, mm -hmm. as they call mm -hmm. themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, then by the time you get to Martinique, you still have a lot. Again, I said Buena Vista Social Club. When you talk about Macumba and Candomblé and Santeria, you get a lot of Congo culture element in yes, there. Yes, yes. You know, during the speech today, the presentation today, I talked about New Orleans. If you get to New Orleans, you have Congo Square. Congo Square is there because I love where the African used to go. Mm -hmm. Again, I love heavy presence of Congo people mm -hmm, mm -hmm. who were there. Uh, the way they bury people mm -hmm. in, uh, in, in New Orleans with music, that's very much can be traced directly to the Congo culture. Mm -hmm. um, I, I remember walking one day, uh, I was in Jamaica, so I was just walking on the beach and met a fellow Jamaican guy. We exchanged pleasantry and start talking and he asked, where are you from? I said, I'm from Congo. And he was so excited. Ah. He came across to shake my hand and he said in Jamaican Patois, you are the original man. Wow. I understand exactly what he meant. Yeah. So he meant like, you are my ancestor, where we from, came from, yeah. from the source. Yeah. Right? So this is stuff that we don't always connect that to. Yes. But I also talk about the Industrial Revolution, right, which is what spurred the technological side of things, mm -hmm. which was fueled primarily uh, through coal with the, you know, steam, the train, and stuff. But the other key part of the Industrial Revolution was rubber because of tire, automobile, right. Ford, and everybody else, yeah, right? of course. Uh, and, of course, rubber was not found everywhere in the world. A big chunk of the contribution to the economy of the time, we've gone from spice, now we're dealing with rubber. Yeah. And was in Congo. Ah. So we all have read about the heart of darkness, uh, King Leopold's ghost, or... Um, uh, apocalypse now. Yeah. That story is Congo. So again, without rubber, we don't know what shape the industrial revolution will have taken. But what we know is Congo played a tremendous role in that. Mm -hmm. So you can go on today. We're dealing, you know, this was the same with World War II, uh, the Manhattan Project with, um, the atomic bomb, the atomic revolution. But the atomic revolution could not be possible without Congo mm -hmm. because uranium specific type of isotope, mm -hmm. uh, for, various type of premium uranium that uranium is found in congo and a few other places but for sure the two bombs that the u.s dropped in, in hiroshima and nagasaki were made with congolese uranium yeah so i always like to say that little man and fat boy were congolese <laughs> <laughs> they might have been made in america but they were congolese yeah right so and today we're dealing with digital revolution um our computers our playstation the material that is needed for that is coltan, tungsten, mm -hmm. columbite. All those are found in abundance in the DRC. Yeah. Um, and then finally, what I call the uh, Tesla revolution um, with um, the Elon Musk revolution. Yeah. Uh, hybrid cars, car running on batteries that mm -hmm. you can recharge. Uh, it's, it's driven by cobalt. Mm -hmm. And the largest producer of cobalt is Congo. Yeah. So again, I think different countries in different places in the world contribute differently. Some countries are very good in coming up with technological innovation. Right. Some countries are very good in financing things. Right. Well, some countries are good at producing what you need right. to change the world. Right. And the DRC is in that bracket. And how do you feel that, I mean, the support for this nation? I mean, we. I feel, don't you think we should be supporting the nation more and how? I know that is such a huge conversation, but I'm sure that you have strong feelings about the support that that is being offered to the nation now and where do wh what could be changing in the future 
I think we need to realize that the world now is much more interconnected than it's ever been, uh, in part because of this various revolution, especially the Apple digital revolution yeah. and then this Tesla revolution. So that means people around the world are yearning for the same thing, namely freedom, uh, freedom of expression, to be able to determine their own destiny and governance. And I think as um, the developed nations of the world need these resources, they need to be mindful of the welfare of all the people where these resources come from. We are better off when everybody can contribute in a way that is meaningful to them, um, to our world, as opposed to being the one who is exploiting others. Because mm -hmm. when we exploit others, we're never safe. Our security is always in danger. We have to continue exploiting them so they don't rise up. Mm -hmm. Because when they rise up, then they deny us access to that stuff. Mm -hmm. But think about um, the give and take of it. If they can do their thing, they can work well, then we can exchange in much more meaningful way and would have to, yeah, we can have win-win situation. Yeah. It doesn't have to have a zero sum uh, because I think so far we approach this stuff in a zero sum. Yeah. Uh, but zero sum doesn't work, you know, with uh, the environmental stuff, for instance. Today we talk about the thinning of the uh, ice cap. Uh, we talk about water rising. We talk about um, the ozone layer thinning up. So global warming... There's X number of things that people in the north, in the greater north, meaning Western nations can do. But Western nations don't control everything when it comes to global warming. Congo has large endowment of forests. In fact, people say Congo is the second lung of the world. Really? Yeah. So if the Congolese are not getting a fair share with their minerals and other stuff, uh, villages and communities are forced to live off the farm, off the trees. Logging is not going to help people in the U.S. Right. So Canada alone cannot change the course of global warming. Yeah. You need places like Congo, places like Brazil. Brazil is the other lung of the world. Mm -hmm. uh, so how do you engage them? I think we need to come up with solutions uh, that are win-win and uh, zero-sum. Great. Well, when we come back, I'd love to continue to talk more about those solutions and look ahead to the future and, and get your opinions on what what things can change and how things can change. Um, but in the meantime, we have another song for you. Um, this artist is a young artist. Uh, this is more contemporary R&B. And her name is Ravine Lene. And this song is called Spice. She's been compared to like a combination between Little Dragon and Erica Badu. Uh, so check her out and see what you think. This is the Apex Hour. And you're listening to KSUU Thunder 91.1. Come, come, take over. I can 
Welcome back to the Apex Hour, KSU Youth under 91.1. I love the ending of that song. That song is called Spice. And originally I said Ravin, but I think that her name is probably pronounced Raven, R-A-V-Y-N. Last name is Lene, L-A-L-E-N-A-E. Um, and again, that song was called Spice. So we're back here in the studio and we're celebrating our great alumnus, Vembe um, Dizolele. Welcome back. Thank you, Lynn. Pleasure. We were talking over the break while the song was playing about how interested I am in, in your work as an interpreter. Uh, and I'd love to just ask you a little bit more about the art of interpreting, um, both in uh, in language interpretation, but as you view yourself as an interpreter in other ways in your life. So if you could share with us, um, first of all, what you think about interpreting and how it goes beyond just language, and then let's see where that takes us. Yeah, I had a, you know, I, I spent some time working as an interpreter about um, uh, working mostly French, Spanish, and English. And it's a very challenging, um, um, because interpreting is not only stuff you learn, but you also have to have a gift for it. Ah. Uh, because it's really lending your voice to somebody else's thought. Right. Yeah, and for the benefit of a third person. Yeah. Right? So, which means... It's almost, interpreting is almost having an out-of-body experience. Uh, 
Hmm. Because you can speak the language, but you're not capable of interpreting. It happens in real time. Mm-hmm. It involves feelings beyond words. It involves thoughts beyond words. And it involves you connecting to the person for which the message is intended. Yeah. It's not about you. So you become the vehicle under which this communication, this exchange between various parties are taking, is taking place. Yeah. And I think, which is different from translating. Right. Because translating, you have a time to go to the dictionary and mm-hmm. you can flip, you can try to find the nuances, you can f- wait for five minutes to come back to the document. Right. In interpreting, I don't have time for that. Right. And in fact, that's why sometimes they've blamed wars and other conflicts on the interpreter. Yeah. Because, oh, that's not the word, I, that's not what I meant. Yeah. Right? But I think that skill set for me, it's helped me a lot in other things that I do. I see. You know, whether when I was working in investment banking in Spain or whether when I was working for Morgan Stanley in London, because I'd learn connect the dot in event in way that makes sense to the people who might be looking at event and seeing different things. Mm-hmm. Because in reality, you know, people always talk about the devil being in the details. Right. I don't see it that way. I oh. think the devil doesn't live in the details. Maybe he come once in a while in there to check the details <laughs> or mess the details up. But I think the devil lives in the definition. Ah. And the definition is exactly what matters to you. Yeah. In other words, you see something, how you define that things determines what you experience and how you engage that thing I see. or that being or that situation. Right. right? So, and different people can see different things and define them differently. And people can even use the same word and don't have the same meaning to it. Yeah. And that becomes a serious issue. So, um, you know, I think this is why economists bless their heart. They always say, assuming this, they always have to make assumptions Mm -hmm. so everybody understands what exactly they mean, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's that's become, so I see part of what I do, whether in, in writing, whether in analyzing world security and other international affairs is to be an interpreter mm-hmm. in looking between the lines, reading between the lines, saying, what does this mean? Mm-hmm. Or somebody may say, but I see this. You say, well, can we turn the thing upside down? Let's see if you still see the same thing yeah. you were saying before. Yeah, uh, And that becomes a very important thing. And I think um, our education should actually prepare us more as interpreters in yeah. life than anything else. In your teaching and in your work with students or even in the workshops that you give, are there any ways that you can recommend to students or, or interested people to develop this, this sense or this ability to interpret? Is there a way to hone it or to learn it? Well, I think f- first and foremost is true interaction, right? Mm. Because as human beings, we are learning beings, yeah. right? So we are, it's always a give and take. Every interaction we have with our fellow human beings hopefully leave us better off than we were before. I love we that. Learn, we learn from what they say. Mm-hmm. We learn from the way they act. So I would say the idea to learn more, we need to leave our, lower our guards mm. so we can interact, truly interact with our fellow human beings because then we learn. And that learning serves us in other situations, mm. right? So what I've learned by, to my interaction with you, hopefully will help me interpret certain situations. Yeah. Yeah. So, and me as well. Yeah, vice versa, right? <laughs> yeah. So I think through that becomes very important. Uh, often we don't see things because we have our own 
blinders, right? right? We want to see certain things. Early on in the program, I was talking that we are trained to think in boxes. Yes. When in reality, life is not about boxes. No. Uh, we need to learn to take the panoramic view. Uh, and, <laughs> I love that. Uh, that's that's yeah. a great quote. Yeah, take the scenic route. It's always yeah. more interesting. Yeah. <laughs> it takes longer, but it's always better. Yeah. Um, so I think that's part of So as we go through our education at the places like SU, other, through our readings, through films, so whatever we do, hopefully we are learning new material that challenge our lenses, mm. maybe make our lenses, our prism much more clear and transparent as opposed to tinted and colored as they often are. Our lenses are t- tinted both through our experiences, yeah. our culture, mm-hmm. uh, our personal right. lives. But we need to try to get those tints, those colors, those films mm-hmm. away mm-hmm. from the lens so we can see much clearer. And I think that makes us better interpreter that way. That's a beautiful, beautiful way to put it. I yeah. love that. Thank yeah. you. You're welcome. Keeping on the student route, one of the things that we we talk a, a lot about with students is, uh, you know, where they go from here and all of these things. And one of the questions I asked you earlier, which I'd love to talk a little more about, is, is uh, what did you gain from your time and your undergraduate degree here at SU or even in school in general, that may help students moving forward? Um, is there any words of wisdom that you have that we could maybe talk about a little bit more? Yeah, I think when I reflect on my time at ACU, but also as a graduate student, I'll say, first of all, don't take things that seriously. It's not that serious. Right. It's not that serious. So take the time to know your classmates. Yeah. Take the time to actually go to the syllabus, to the... Uh, the course uh, listings, yeah, and take more of the classes you like and less the classes that you must have to take. You know, we have enough uh, in the curriculum everywhere. They require so many g- required courses, right? Mm-hmm. GE mm-hmm. and others. Okay, take those because you have to take them. Uh, they, they require it for you to graduate, right? But I think you need to make your education in the way that à la carte. What do you want to do? Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you want to see your life be like? Uh, if you have to design your own life your own little uh, resume as a freshman, as a sophomore, what would you like to be? Do you want to be the Renaissance woman yeah. or do you want to be just the nerd? Right. Uh, I think it's much better to be the Renaissance yeah. woman. Or, I mean, even Einstein went as a Renaissance man. Yeah. That is known for all the nerdy stuff, EM, E equal MC square stuff, you know. But really, he was a much broader person. Mm-hmm. So I think take classes that you're afraid of. Do not be afraid to have a D. It's fine. I had a D when I was here. I didn't die. I graduated summa cum laude with my D. You know, I went on to one of the best schools in the world. Exactly. So uh, do the best you can do, but really enjoy your time. It's only four years of your life. We live to be 85. Imagine four years. So you don't want your four years to constrain the rest of your life. Take the classes you need, you want to take that you enjoy. Uh, Don't choose your major in relation to work. Choose your major to relation to your own fulfillment. Because most people in life don't do what they went to school for anyway. Well, I'd love to kind of zero in on that a little bit. It's to sort of tying in very nicely with um, some of the discussions we had last week where um, we were talking about the workforce and how, you know, a lot of the specifics can be trained by companies. But what companies are looking for is a complete person, uh, you know, somebody who has this sort of m- not renaissance, but this renaissance man, renaissance woman kind of attitude and the ability to think and communicate. W- would you say that's true? true for how you think as well? Absolutely. I think today uh, companies 
professional situations, consultancies are not looking for cookie cutters. Right. So you don't want to be like somebody who just came out of an assembly line with your bachelor's in political science. Mm -hmm. You want somebody who is from who's had a degree in political science, but who knows a lot about what happened in music, who knows how to do pottery, mm -hmm. who can talk about the stuff when they're sitting on an airplane with some woman who is a percussionist yeah. <laughs> and talk about the sound of music and stuff. So it becomes important because companies are looking for value added. Um, you don't want to be a cookie cutter because you want to be you. They're looking for unique, right. your unique you, and your unique you make you competitive. Right. In other words, you want to be as irreplaceable as possible. It's very difficult, mm -hmm. but you want to be that. So they can say, oh, she does X, Y, Z so good in the way that we don't have many people who do that. So being this kind of versatile individual with your degree in political science or degree in French, mm -hmm. allows you to transcend different words. And the, the, the employment world, the professional world itself is so dynamic. People now don't hold the same job for 30 years. Mm -hmm. They change a lot of jobs and mm -hmm. jobs are mutating and changing. Mm -hmm. So the more versatile you are in your exposure, in your education, the more probably flexible you will be and competitive going down uh, down your life. So to me, the advice, uh, if I had to do my education at places like a SUU, I'll probably take a lot of writing classes, for yeah. instance. Uh -huh. uh, I did take English composition. It's great. Uh, I think I write okay. But doing more of that would be interesting. Maybe write more for the Thunderbird. Maybe do a couple more communication and broadcasting classes. Mm -hmm. Come here, spend time at the radio station as a volunteer. Yeah. Um, I mean, I end up doing broadcasting for The Voice of America. Yeah. Uh, it turned out okay for me, but I had another set of skills right. that I didn't develop right. here. And it would have been good if I had, for instance, done radio while I was here. Mm -hmm. uh, take some theater classes. Go act over there. This is the Shakespeare capital of the world. Mm -hmm. um, so the many opportunities here, it's only four years. There's only so much you can pack in there. Mm -hmm. But don't cheat yourself. Yeah. I just think that uh, that goes a long way. And don't worry too much about grades. Grades, yeah. they will not matter 10 years after you leave school. Right. You need to graduate. So of it's course. good. Graduate and be the best at what you do, mm -hmm. but they should not be the only factor. I'm so glad that you emphasized that. I, I talk to my students and I talk to my team a lot about uh, learning all these different skills and, and cobbling them all together because, I mean, I know in my life, it sounds like in your life as well, all these different things have come to make you an indispensable member of teams or departments, and, and that's it. It makes you unique. It makes you marketable. It makes you valuable. Yeah. And people are looking for unique people. Mm -hmm. We all like that unique guy, unique lady. Of oh, she's so cool. Yeah, but it's because of a certain things to add to our lives. Right, we're not competing. We don't want to be. We don't want to be carbon copies. But we just want to be us. Right, and I think we endowed with different skill sets, and we need to develop those our various talents. Yeah, and genius sometimes fail at school. Yes. Genius don't always have PhDs. Exactly. Yeah. Well, we I can't believe we are already nearly out of time, which is amazing. We could have spent hours and hours. But I have one question that I always ask. Uh, everybody who listens to the show knows it's kind of one of these things where we ask it every week. And it's it's a, 
an easy question, and it's what's turning you on right now, which means it could be a book or a TV show or a song or an artist or a podcast or a movie. It doesn't have to be anything academic. It's just kind of uh, another way for somebody to get an interesting little personal take. And so I'd love to ask you, outstanding alumnus for 2018, Vimbo Disolele, what is turning you on this week? This week, I'm just, to me, just teaching. Ah. I mean, I'm here, of course, um, I teach every week my classes. So uh, once a course started, I'm so connected to my students, I cannot wait to get back to them. So that's, I'm driven just by that connection. And I asked you this earlier, but what are those classes that you're teaching right now? And I know you have a really exciting one coming up in the spring. So this semester, I'm teaching a class called Conflict in the African Great Lakes. Uh, it's a graduate-level course, so graduate uh, master's and PhDs. And we deal a lot with uh, conflict in the sub-region of Africa that they know, the Great Lakes. Eastern Congo, Rwanda, Burundi, issues of uh, genocide, issues of ethnic violence, politics of exclusion, and all that stuff. It's part of this uh, international relation package. And next semester, I'm teaching a course called Africa Security Challenges, Governance, the Military, and uh, Insurgencies. And that cross continent, yeah. so we deal with uh, terrorists, you know, Al Qaeda in the Maghreb, yeah. Boko Haram in Nigeria. We deal with Al Shabab. Uh, we deal with armies of Africa. How they deal with? We deal with European armies, Western armies. Right. How they engage in Africa? The U.S. Africa Command. Uh, we deal with youth discontent. Uh, you have a lot of riots across the continent mm-hmm. because of youth not having access to employment, to education. We deal with the mismanagement or management of uh, natural resources. Mm-hmm. We deal with women empowerment. Mm-hmm. Literally, what makes this world either work right. or fall up in flames, right? <laughs> so, but fascinating stuff. Grad students, uh, my students come from around the world from different perspectives. I have a lot of uh, military officers who are on the way to becoming defense attaches around Africa, former Peace Corps, former NGO type of thing. So it's a combination of everyone. And that stuff I find very exciting, talking about what turns you on. You know? yeah. The idea that you can, I mean, you teach, but you learn a lot from your student. They bring their own set of experiences yeah. as they come to the classroom as well. Well, thank you so much for spending this time today. It's been an honor to have you on campus and welcome back to SEU. And we will all be following your career as you move forward in your life. Thank you very much. This is home. So it's a great honor to be here. Well, we'll look forward to having you back again soon. But for now, we're going to say goodbye from the Apex Hour and we'll see you next week. Thanks so much for listening to the Apex Hour here on KSUU's Thunder 91.1. Come find us again next Thursday at 3 p.m. for more conversations with the visiting guests at Southern Utah University and new music to discover for your next playlist. And in the meantime, we would love to see you at our events on campus. To find out more, check out suu.edu apex. Until next week, this is Lynn Vartan saying goodbye from the Apex Hour here on Thunder 91.1.